Thank you for leading us. We're going to now spend some time looking at the Bible together. Uh, we like to do this every week. This is a central part of our gathering that we would open up the scriptures because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're calling this series, Church is Not What You Think. Church is not what you think. Many of us have different ideas of what church is. Some of you have been hurt by churches. I've heard a lot of crazy stories. Uh, Some of you have never been to church before. Um, And so we want to look to the scriptures and allow Jesus and allow his word to define who we are and what he calls us to be. Um, There's this common misconception that church is the place where we gather. And I said this during our confession time. It's a gathering of people that have fixed their life right? It's a gathering of people who are already doing the right thing. Uh, But we're going to see in our text today that church is actually a group of people who are desperate for God's help. We're a a group of people who are desperate for God's help. And so we're gathering around Jesus and his grace, not gathering around religion and our own ability to work our lives out. So this week, as we look at Titus chapter 2, we're calling it Power to Change, power to change. We're finishing up chapter two. In some ways, all of chapter two is one big idea that the power that we get from God is what actually changes our daily life. And so we started that last week. We're going to continue that this week, um, working through verses nine through 15. Uh, My father-in-law lives with us and he likes to watch TV. Um, For those of you in in your 20s, that's like Netflix without a internet connection, okay? And so what you have to do, because you don't have Wi-Fi, you don't have internet to, to get signals on a television, is you have to have an antenna. Um, sometimes you can have an antenna in the room. We found that it's better to have a big, gigantic antenna that sticks up on top of my roof. Um, now, we've also found that some of the channels still don't come in unless we have power boosting the signal. So I've got to connect this little power signal booster to our antenna outside of our house. For whatever reason, it works better outside the house than inside the house. I don't know. I just was experimenting, and it works better that way. Problem is, it's basically in our backyard where this thing is plugged in, and so every time I use a big, heavy power tool, the surge strip that I plug into, that everything else is plugged into, it blows the circuit, and it turns off the power, and then my father-in-law can't get his favorite channels, right? And so we've been through this a few times, and we've got to have the power to be able to change the channels, be able to get all the right reception that he wants to get. Just a few weeks ago, we had New Year's Eve, and my kids had a party. Um, And, you know, my wife and I are old, my kids are young, so we went to bed, and I don't know what happened. Um, Nothing bad, but I wasn't there to make sure they knew what to unplug and what not to unplug, right? And so we have these kind of like party lights, I guess, you know, on our back patio, and they couldn't figure out how to turn them off. So basically what the kids did was they went around unplugging every single socket in my backyard, right? I have all kinds of like power cords running different directions and they just unplugged everything. So that then like the next day, my father was like, hey, the channels aren't working again. I'm like, man, I don't know. It looks like it's plugged in because I just checked that normal little surge strip where there's the button, you know, where it turns off. And I was like, it's on, the light is green, I don't know what to tell you. And he kept saying, it's not working. So I had to go back and go back. And finally, I realized that my kids, trying to be nice and clean up from the party and unplug the lights, had unplugged everything, right? 
We had no power running through that backyard at all. The only power that was there was the one surge strip, but everything else had been unplugged. And so I had to plug it all back in, and then we had power again. And I use the illustration because it's one that I think you understand, apart from television, which half of you don't understand. But the illustration of you need power to power your electronic devices, and we understand how that works, right? We all have electronic devices that without a battery or without a plug, they're not going to work properly. And so here's the question. Are you trying to change what's broken in your life based on your own strength? That's the big question. There are often two directions we go in. We've already addressed this in the book of Titus. It's a common theme in the New Testament, but two fleshly human ways that we we try to change what's broken. We try to go with the power of distraction, pleasure, and feeling good, right? That's usually the non-religious route. We say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink, or I'm going to have fun, or I'm going to have new relationships. I'm going to do whatever it takes, movies, good times, partying, to try to forget the pain of this broken world. And if I do it that way, I'll maybe forget the pain. I might change my heart. My heart might feel better, and maybe that'll get me to where I need to go. And if you've been at it long, you're starting to recognize it doesn't work. The other route that we go to change ourselves by the power of our own flesh is religion. We say, you know what? I can just be better than the next guy. I can organize my life. I can be so conscientious. I can be so obedient. I can be so organized that I won't be as bad as that partier over there, and I'll be able to change. And the sad thing is it usually takes those of us in the religious uh, column longer to figure out that that's not working. So the problem is we're like, well, I'm better than that guy, right? So we think it's working and it's tricking us. In our text today and throughout the New Testament, we're told that the only power to change is God's grace. Now the word grace, I want to define it before we look at the text. The word grace in its general sense means a kind or favorable inclination, right? So grace is a general word that just means being nice to somebody. But in the New Testament, It's defined way more specifically than that. Not only does God have a kind inclination towards us, but he ran after you and ran after me in our sin. He chased us down. He became the human that we should have been. He lived the life that we should have lived. And then as a sacrifice, he took our sins upon himself. He he took our place. And then it still doesn't stop there. He died for you and he died for me, but then he rose from the dead, proving that he really is God and Savior, that he really does rule the universe and that he can save you and he can save me. So grace is this beautiful word that is ultimately our power to change and it's in contrast to our flesh. Now, the word flesh doesn't appear in this text, but you're gonna, if you read your Bible at all, it's going to appear again and again and again. You're going to keep seeing it. The flesh is human beings trying to do things on their own. I've got certain gifts. You've got certain gifts. And when we try to change ourselves based on our gifts, whatever I'm good at, whatever you're good at, we're relying on our flesh. The text is going to say grace is where the power is. So let's read the text. So it's Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 15. Titus 2, 9 through 15. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is how the church is defined in the Bible. Church is not the group of people that has all their stuff together. The, the church is the group of people that gather around our desperate need for the power of God, our desperate need for the grace of God to renew us, to change us, to make us new. So let me pray for our time together and ask God uh, to be here with us and to help us. God, we thank you for your grace to us, and we confess how we often try to rely on our own strength or the strength of other things nearby that we can grasp, that we think will change us or fix us or numb us or comfort us. And God, we're seeing in this text and in so many other ways that you are our only hope, that your grace is what really changes us. And so we pray that you would help us to come to you, to call to you, to rely on you, to trust in you. And we pray that your spirit would meet us right now as we look at the scriptures together, that you'd help us to hear, to understand, to, to love what you offer us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, every week as I'm working on the sermon, uh, I kind of struggle over the words that I want to use to summarize this because my goal is to be clear and to kind of help you see what's in the text. My, my goal is to kind of peel back the roof. One of my favorite stories is when these guys bring their friend in to see Jesus and he's in this crowded house that can't get in. So they literally rip the roof open and lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And when I'm trying to preach the word of God, that's kind of what I'm trying to do, right? I'm trying to kind of like peel the layers back, the distance of culture and weird language the ESV likes to use and stuff like that to say, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has for you. And so I'm always kind of playing with the words back and forth, changing the language. This week, I decided on power to change. It's kind of the central idea what this was about, but I was on the fence. You know, like I was back and forth. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's confusing, if that's too vague, if that's the right thing. I knew there was this big emphasis on grace in the text. Um, And I was working on a new Bible study I'm doing with some guys uh, from the Celebrate Recovery Ministry. We have a thing called Step Study. Uh, It's the leadership training, and it's the way that you kind of work through hurts, habits, and hangups in your life. So I'm reading this first lesson, chapter one. We just started the study together. Uh, and in chapter one, it was skipping you around from this page to that page, kind of jumping around this uh, recovery Bible and looking at different lessons on different pages. And this is a phrase that I found repeated four or five times in my first lesson yesterday. And in the back of my head, I'm like, is this really what this text is about? Is this what I should talk about? Is this where we need to be? And this is, this is the phrase. The power to change comes only through God's grace. And I read it again. The power to change comes only through God's grace. And I read it another time, flipped over some more pages. The power to change comes only through God's grace. And then I read it a fourth time. The power to change comes only through God's grace. The question is, do you believe it? The question is, do I believe it? 
Well, I was certainly convicted, man, this is a lesson apparently I need to learn if nobody else does. But I think it's something we all struggle with. Like I said, we all struggle with trying to take control, trying to change ourselves, trying to fix ourselves. There's a phrase I've heard, you've probably heard before, which is, uh, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, that's the definition of crazy, right? And that's where so many of us are, right? And the switch you might be flipping over and over again might be the switch of following the flesh into distraction, rebellion, and running from God. It might be the switch of indulgence, of just pursuing pleasure, running away from God, trying to do your own thing. That's, that's one way to try to change your circumstances. But there's also this equally dangerous way of trying to change our circumstances, and that's the power of being religious and righteous by our own strength. Either way, it's not going to work. The power to change comes only through God's grace. And so we're going to see in this text three things that God's grace changes, okay? Three things that God's grace changes. It changes our work. It changes our work. And we've got some, some difficulties in the text we'll deal with, but in general, it changes our work. It changes how you work, how I work. Then next, we'll see that God's grace changes lifestyles. It changes how we live. It changes the direction of our moral framework, what we do day to day. It changes our lifestyle. And then finally, it changes our commission. It changes our commission. Hopefully, I'll be able to explain that. I think uh, it connects kind of with the military framework of what a commission means. But God has commissioned us. It's a job for us to do. So God's grace changes our work, changes our lifestyles, changes our authority. The power to change comes only through God's grace. And before we get going in the text, I have a couple of verses I wanted to share. This is a really helpful book on, it's called Habits of Grace, right? How do we position ourselves to be the kind of people that are gathering desperately around God's grace so that we don't become the religious people that are like, hey, look at me, I've got it all figured out, but we're just desperately, desperately saying, Jesus, I need you, will you help me, right? Uh, and historically, uh, church theologians would call, about, uh, call this posture uh, of needing grace and receiving grace they would call it the uh, means of grace. In this book, it's called the habits of grace. Here are a couple of quotes that I just thought were helpful. Uh, thinking about spiritual disciplines, things that we do in our life, like reading the Bible or praying or gathering together with other Christians in worship or taking communion uh, or encouraging one another, right? These are all ways that we say, Jesus, I need you. That's what we're saying. We don't do these things to impress God or to impress each other. We do these things because we believe that the power to change comes only through God's grace. So a couple of quotes. Donald Whitney wrote a great book on spiritual disciplines. He says it this way, as ways we can place ourselves in the path of God's grace and seek him as Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus placed themselves in Jesus's path and sought him. So when we do church or we do Bible reading, or we do prayer, we're not doing that to impress anybody. We're doing it like short Zacchaeus climbing up in the tree so we can get a view of Jesus. Or we're doing it like blind Bartimaeus saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. Are you pursuing God's grace? Uh, another quote about the disciplines of grace from Jonathan Edwards, an, an older, uh, I think from the 1700s, older great American theologian. He puts it this way. Disciplines of grace, habits of grace are so that you can endeavor to promote spiritual appetite, appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. That one almost sounds bad, right? So what you're doing is you're developing spiritual appetites by laying yourself 
in the way of allurement. You're posturing yourself to kind of fan the flame of your need and desire for Jesus. And so if, if you don't get anything else today, get that we are together as God's people. That's what the church should be. We should be a group of people, a group of misfits saying, I need God's grace. I can't change without it. I need him. So the first thing that we're going to look at as we think about the power to change is grace changes work. Grace changes our work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up how this is a general principle biblically. We're going to look at the text. Then we're going to talk about the things in the text that kind of freak us out. And then we're going to come back to the general principle. Okay? Just wanted to set the roadmap for you. So general principle is this. Grace changes our work and work is good. Work is good. Um, So God made human beings to work. Work is a good and beautiful thing. And as you do your job, you have an opportunity to do your job for the glory of God. And so we see this sometimes as described as the cultural commission in the Old Testament in Genesis. Uh, that in Genesis 1 and 2, humanity is made to image God, right? Like we reflect God in the world through our character, but also through our work. And we are to form, to fill, to have dominion. There's particular instructions given to Adam and Eve with the garden. They are to work it and to care for it. I would say a metaphor that you could think about is it's our job to spread paradise, to spread God's goodness in the world, right? To care for this garden, to take this world that's sometimes a wilderness and make it into a paradise. And that's what we're commissioned to do. That's what we're told to do. Um, But of course, you know the story, Adam and Eve sinned and a curse came in. And so in Genesis 3, we see this curse that goes along with sin. And that curse is that there are going to be thorns and thistles in our work. There are going to be pains in childbearing. So that doesn't mean childbearing is bad or work is bad. That just means there's some badness that goes along with it, right? So we are still to work. We are still to have kids. We are still to do life. We are still to make culture. Work is good. We just know there's some pain that goes along with it. But that's the playing field on which we will image God is by doing our work, by fulfilling our jobs. We talked last week about sometimes we have different roles, sometimes by the place you live and the training you have and just the the physical abilities you have. You know, there are limitations placed on us. We don't want to fall for the American ideal that we can absolutely be anything with no limitations, right? There are some realistic limitations on what we can do and what we should do. But in general, we should do our work for the glory of God. It's a good and beautiful thing. And so let's look at the text now. How do I get this from the text? Verse nine, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Bond servants. How many of you have a different translation there other than bond servant? Handful of you? Okay. Most of you, it probably says slave. Does it say slave? Right? Why do you think the translators in some translations would say bond servant and in some they would say slave? Why do you think they make that choice? Well, in America, we have a, we have a particular problem with slavery, right? And, and the way to understand this, I think, is that in America, the way we practice slavery was especially bad especially grotesque, and especially hideous. And as Christians, number one, we can be proud that Christians were at the forefront of abolishing slavery in in America. We can be proud of that. But at the same time, there's something right and good and healthy uh, for corporate grief, you know, to be like, man, that was messed up. Like that, that was bad. And we should be sad about that. and We should grieve about that. As a Christian, we should always, we should always grieve over sin, whatever that may be particularly because of this text and because of this month, it's Black History Month, it's good to look back on 
the, the problems we've had with race, relationships, slavery in particular, but part of what made slavery so bad in our country is we did isolate it and focused it on African Americans out of convenience. And then often people would use scripture to justify it, right? Because scripture often speaks about it neutrally. So two things I want you to understand when you read the Bible. Number one, Hebrew slavery and first century Roman slavery was not the same thing as how we practiced it in our country. It was not as race-based and dehumanizing as it was in our culture. And so we would just want to look at that and say that was wrong. Now, I want to be careful and say, does that mean, Dave, you are justifying the lesser evil <laughs> of Hebrew and Roman slavery? No, I'm not justifying that either. I mean, we've seen through centuries of where Christians are in leadership, eventually those Christians move to say, you know what, we, we probably shouldn't own people even if it's temporary. But here's a really strange correlation, a really interesting illustration of what slavery was like in the Hebrew world when you read the laws surrounding and regulating slavery. And in the first century Roman world, um, the reason bond servant is used because the idea is you bond yourself to someone as a servant for a temporary point of time, and then it ends, and then you have your freedom again. And it was often for financial reasons. Uh, probably the closest thing we could, we could uh, associate with that reality of how it was done in that culture is being on a military contract. Like that's pretty close to what it meant to be a bondservant in the first century in Rome. You have some freedom, but you don't have a lot of freedom for those three years or those five years or whatever it may be, Right? You kind of belong to that master, and that master gets to call you at 2 a.m. if he wants to. And they get to tell you where, where to go and where to live and what to do. So that's very different than the horrors of race-based slavery in our country. Now, because we're on that subject and because it is Black History Month, I want to encourage a couple of resources for you. Because as Christians, we want to be those who grow and understand and stand for what is right and stand for justice and what is good and what is holy. So here are a couple of things that I want to recommend to you. One is a theology book called One New Man by Jarvis Williams, African-American theology professor at Southern Seminary. And Williams just lays out all the scriptures that make it clear that the goal of the New Testament is that all races would be one in Christ. And so this is much more textual, a lot of Bible verses, a lot of theology, putting those texts together. If you want to study it from that perspective, this is a really helpful book and I recommend it. I'm going to leave these books up here for you to come look at. You can take a picture, you can order them. Please don't steal my books. These are my books, okay? But I'd love for you to study and buy some of these on your own. This other one is called Let Justice Roll Down. It's by John Perkins. I talked about this a couple of few weeks ago uh, at MLK Day. John Perkins was an African-American pastor um, who, before he knew Christ, lived in Mississippi, fled Mississippi to move to California in the 50s because it was so bad, it was so oppressive, he left. But then he met Jesus in California, and he felt a call in his life to go back and serve his people in the difficult place with less freedom at the time, Mississippi. So he became a pastor, went back, planted a church, uh, grew ministries in the middle of the civil rights movement, in the middle of a lot of oppression in Mississippi in the 60s. So this is a more biographical, historical work. Um, if you're like me, I'm a Gen Xer. I, grew, I was born in the early 70s, and so the civil rights movement, quote unquote, was finished by the time I was born. So it's easy to have a kind of Pollyanna view that, oh, everything's better and everything's great and moving on, right? Uh, for those of us that grew up just kind of thinking it was all done and we'd moved on, it's good to go back and study history and, and understand 
how the, the tentacles of that oppression have worked its way into a lot of different things in our society. So I just recommend you, you growing in your understanding of the issues. So read one of these books to understand either the New Testament perspective on it or historically what's happened in our own country. Okay, so moving on, let's now go back to what's the big idea here? The big idea is that work, even in the worst job you could have, can be done for the glory of God. Do you see that? This is primarily about work, not as much about slavery per se, but it's about work. So you might have a terrible job. You might be a bond servant. You might have a boss that gets to tell you where to live and what to do, right? A lot of you are in the U.S. Army, and you're basically a bond servant, and you may not like your boss, and you may not like your situation, but even in those situations, Paul is saying that you can glorify God, that God's grace transforms how you see your work, that it can be a playing field on which you point to the goodness of Jesus. So let's look at the, the text. He gives some negatives and he gives some positives. So some negatives of what this looks like. He says, uh, number one, general framework, submit. Um, so this general framework of submission, he uses this word a lot throughout the New Testament. We talked about it last week. Submission is literally to arrange yourself under the tactics of another person, hupo tasso in Greek. And he's saying, so you're going to align yourself with where they say we're going and you're going to support that. And you're going to help your boss be successful. That's your number one job in everything. He says, be well-pleasing, be well-pleasing, right? Um, be nice help your boss. Don't be a thorn in their side. He goes on and says, not argumentative, not argumentative. We'll have to come back to that one in a minute because some of you have the gift of argumentation, right? He also says not pilfering. What does pilfering mean? It basically means stealing. Um, it's a kind of subcategory of stealing that often means stealing small things, right? So most of you don't go and like hold up convenience stores and steal in that sense, but you might be stealing small things that you think nobody will notice. That's what pilfering is. So the command from the text is don't steal. Uh, and I'll say it this way. If you are stealing, stop stealing, right? He's saying your job should not be to take from your employer, but to actually give to your employer. And how does grace change that in your life? Well, because grace tells you that you've got the inheritance of the king of the universe, You've been saved by grace. You've been adopted into the family of God. And so although you may not like working for this person right now, you're heading to a future where all tears will be wiped away and everything will be made right. So that gives you a kind of richness and a kind of freedom to live your life as a recipient of grace that then gives grace to others, even in a difficult job. So you're no longer an orphan. You're now an adopted son or daughter of the king. You're no longer on your own where you have to take to survive, but now you are taken care of and you can give to others. So don't steal. He goes on in verse 10, showing all good faith. Uh, this word good can mean beautiful, good faith, beautiful faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So if you do all these things, what are you doing? You're adorning the doctrine, the teaching of God as Savior. So the way you do your job, does your job teach people that the doctrine is gross and hideous and that God's not really a Savior, he's a condemner, or are you so gracious in the way you do your job that you point people to God as Savior? You're adorning, you're making beautiful this doctrine, this teaching. 
They got a savior. How is your work? What's it pointing to? Now I want to go back to the specific here. Um, well, I've got an illustration for this, tandem bike. My wife and I rode on a tandem bicycle uh, on our honeymoon. It was really fun. And it's more difficult than you would think. How many of you have ever ridden on a tandem bicycle? Some of you? Yeah. It's kind of hard, right? You kind of got to coordinate a little bit. And that bike's got one frame, and generally, they're headed in the right direction, the same direction. Uh, this picture is a weird illustration of a tandem bike where two people are driving in different directions. That's not going to work, okay? So I want you to use that image as often what can happen when you're not submitting to your boss. When you're being argumentative, you're not helping them, you're not supporting them, it just feels like you're trying to pull them in the opposite direction. Your goal is to support them and to help them to be successful. And so specifically, some of you, it says, don't be argumentative, be well-pleasing. Those of you that have the gift of argument, right? Um, There are certain kinds of people, I know you, I love you. You're really good at pointing out what is broken. And that is actually a gift, okay? Um, I think I was a little too free and I made fun of you too much in the first service. I'm going to try to be nicer this service. That really is a gift, right? Your ability to see and notice what is broken really is a gift. And, And I understand too. I want to sympathize with you. I understand. I've learned from loving you over the years that you're receiving this data constantly, right? Like if that's you, you're seeing what's broken all the time. And so when you speak up about it, you're thinking you're not being argumentative because you're like, well, there's a thousand things that are broken. I just brought up this one thing, right? And so you're already funneling it. So I just want to kind of give you some, some ways to help guide that, right? Don't stop using that gift. It says, don't be argumentative, be well-pleasing, and use your gift to submit to your leader, submission, right? So that the doctrine of God as Savior can be made beautiful. So here's the thing, Um, stick to what is mission critical, right? Because you're submitting to your leader. So what is mission critical? I think that's a really good way to help guide your gift so that you're not just pointing out what's broken so your leader doesn't feel like you're bicycling in the opposite direction, right? But you're supporting them, you're helping, you're using your gift to actually help them be successful. And I know it can be confusing for you because sometimes people don't want to hear what's broken, right? So it's okay. That doesn't mean being argumentative when you bring up what's broken, but you want to stick to what's mission critical and you want to stick to what's under your jurisdiction, right? Because sometimes if you have that gift, you're like, well, they're broken over there and they're broken over there, right? Just stick with your lane and how you can help support your leader. So that's some advice that I think is helpful. But again, in general, the idea is that we're doing all this, we're helping, we're serving so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior. That's the end goal, right? That's why you don't steal. That's why you submit to your leader. That's why you're not arguing all the time. That's why you're not trying to pull them in the opposite direction. You're supporting their mission and helping them and being kind and being well-pleasing, all good faith, so that you can adorn, you can make beautiful this doctrine. And, and this is grace, right? That's the doctrine. That's the teaching. The teaching of God as Savior is the teaching of grace. It's the teaching that we all deserve judgment and we are indeed under judgment. But God does not only reveal himself to us as a God of judgment who will judge our sin. There will be judgment for sin, but God came and entered our world. He came and pursued us. He chased after us. By his grace, he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should have everlasting life, should not perish, right? So he enters into this world 
where we are under judgment and he takes our sin upon himself on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. So if you trust him, you have life. So that that, that remakes even your work. Even, even that crazy commander you work for, you can serve them in a way that points a picture to God's grace, no matter what kind of job you have. Okay, next idea, grace changes our lifestyles. And this is where the really like, heavy language about grace comes out here. Verses 11 through 13, starting in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Um, So he's going to give a lot more detail on what this grace looks like. But my summary is this. Grace always means kindness, a kind inclination, favor. But specifically in the New Testament, it takes on this very specific meaning of God uh, taking on our judgment through Christ, through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So that's what he's talking about here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The New Testament teaches that not every single person will be saved. There will be some, and God says, I want to give you grace and forgiveness in Christ. And we say, no, I don't want that. I want to save myself. And I want to live life without you. And there's this picture in the New Testament that God allows people to live without him for eternity. And the term for that is, is hell. That that's horrible. That like living without the, the center of all joy and all grace is horrible, right? And so the New Testament warns against that, but God will allow that. God will give people to that if that's what they desire. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We would believe in context is meaning, well, he just talked about bond servants. He just talked about older, younger, you know, rich, poor, tall, short, whatever, you know, all kinds of people, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what of our, our race is, no matter what our background is, the grace of God is for everybody, right? Because Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not like the grace of God is, is just for the really savable people, right? It's not like God just came after in his grace, the really attractive people. It's not like he's just picking teams and taking the best of us, right? We're all broken. So those of us that didn't get picked, God's grace is for us as well. Those of the, that have always felt like outsiders, God's grace is for us as well. God's coming for you. God loves you. That's what his grace means. And this word appeared is, is a really pretty cool word. Um, it's more than just appeared, okay? It's hard to translate in English. It's like appeared in a big way. In the uh, first century Greek, uh, it's, in English we say epiphany. Have you all ever heard that word, epiphany? It's the Greek word epiphino. And what that means is like a big, a bursting on the scene appearing. It's like the breaking of dawn. It's often used for weather, a new day appearing, new dawn appearing. And it's often used to talk about like Greek gods showing up on the scene, like a superhero movie. That's what the word appearing means in this sense. And so what he's saying here is that we live between the first appearing and the second appearing. The first breaking of dawn of this God who is a savior who shows us grace and the second appearing. That's, that's where we live right now. And so we're changing our lifestyle because of God's grace, because he appeared to us the first time in the cross and resurrection, proving to us that he's a gracious, forgiving God. And so we entrust ourselves to him. And then we stumblingly follow him. And we stumblingly follow him looking forward to his second appearing when he's going to come back and he's going he's to wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sickness and no more pain where there will finally be justice everywhere. That's where we live. That's what we look forward to. So this grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
So what does grace do? Grace trains us, literally, it takes us from the stuff we've been pursuing and turns us so that now we're pursuing the new things. I grabbed a picture here of a soccer coach talking to his kid. I coached soccer uh, only when the kids were four years old. I don't think I coached after that. Um, Four-year-old soccer coaching is way less strategic than like 12-year-old soccer coaching, okay? Four-year-old soccer coaching is basically saying, uh, okay, honey, stop picking the flowers. Let's go towards the ball now, okay? And so you gently put your arm around them and you turn them and you take them in a new direction. And that's what God's grace does for us. He meets us where we are. He trains us to walk in a new way. He trains us to renounce that junk that's not saving us. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm your savior now. The bottle's not going to save you. The porn addiction is not going to save you. The string of relationships is not going to save you. That religious club is not going to save you. Thinking you're better than your neighbors, that's not going to save you. Jesus is saying he will save us. One of my favorite pictures of this is from a book called The Cure by John Lynch. And he says to imagine it this way. Most of us think about ourselves as here, our sin is this big pile of junk here, and we've got to work through it to get to Jesus, right? Just like our, our coach or maybe our parents, like once you get that cleaned up, then I'll approve of you. So you, you work your way through that sin. You work your way through that junk. You organize your life. You fix yourself, and then we can get to Jesus. But that's not what the gospel is. That's, that's religion. The gospel is that Jesus broke through our sin, and he came to us. And so his arm is around you. If you're trusting in Jesus, he's with you. And he's like, we're, we're going to work on this sin together. Yes, that is a lot of sin, but we'll work on it together. And his arm is around you and he is with you. He's present with you. He is training us to renounce our old ways and to walk a new life. So that, that doesn't mean you never fail again. It doesn't mean you never stumble again. It means he's with you and you fall and he picks you up and he's like, all right, let's keep going. No, you don't want that. You want this. And we're pursuing him in a new direction. How do we, how do, we do this in, in real life? Um, there are two parts to this and I, I kind of got tripped over my words in the first service because really the order doesn't matter too much. When I first wrote this, I was like, you got to do this first and then that second. Here are the two pieces. One is clarifying your understanding of God's grace. Renewing your understanding of who Jesus is and the grace that he has for you. Sometimes we call that preaching the gospel to ourselves, but studying and understanding and clarifying that, changing your mind about God's posture towards you, that he is a God of grace. He is our God and Savior, both. Changing your mind about that, clarifying that. The other thing is confessing sin on working on it, actually working on it, right? Dealing with it. And here's the thing. I think the order happens differently based on who you are, right? Because for some of you, you see the problem of your sin first. You're like, man, I'm broken. I messed up. I have not met the standards. I need grace. I need forgiveness. There's no way I can fix this on my own. For some of us, that's how it happens. For others of us, we're so ashamed and we're hiding with our sin and we're retreating and it's the clarifying of God's grace that gives us the freedom to come out of the darkness. Say, yeah, I can now confess my sin and start working on it. So both things are really important. Understand God's posture towards you. He's a God of grace. 
He pursued you. We love because he first loved us. My wife and I put this in our wedding rings. 1 John 4.19, we both came from broken homes. Uh, we were smart enough to know we didn't know what we were doing, right? That's a, that's a good wisdom where most Christians can start out. And so we put this on our wedding rings because it says we love because he first loved us. Not we're going to just fix everything that's been broken in our family history because we're so strong. We love because he first loved us. He, he took the initiative to come to us. Clarify that in your own mind. One of my favorite other passages on the subject of God's grace is Deuteronomy 7, 7. Really that whole section, but Deuteronomy 7, he's telling Israel, his people, like, I didn't save you because you're savable, right? Like, I didn't save you because you were impressive. I didn't save you or love you because you were lovely. Matter of fact, you were puny, right? Like, you were weak. I loved you because I love you. It's based in God's character, not in our perfection. God makes us lovable. His affection that he's poured out on us is what makes us beautiful. And so getting that right in our minds, clarifying that is so important. And then we can take those, uh, those steps of confessing that sin then. So we make this a part, kind of a, a regular part of our worship service together, just like reminding ourselves, hey, we're not the gathering of people that got it all figured out. We're the gathering of people that need God's grace. So we're just gonna have a time of confession we're sinners, but Jesus, you love us. You forgave us. We're going to do that as a regular part of our gathered worship together as we gather around God's grace, as we gather around Jesus. But also it's important to do that in your personal life as well, individually. Uh, in order to be a Christian, you have to be a person that stops lying about your sin. So First John 1 says there are two kinds of people. There are people that lie and say they don't have sin. And that's where some of you are. We're glad you're here. We're, we're just pleading with you to recognize that it's there and that it exists. So some lie and say they don't have sin, and then others confess it. And God is just. He's kind. He forgives us. He purifies us from all sin. And so the question is, which kind of person are you? And you got to start with confessing it to God, right? It starts between you and him. I'm a sinner. You're my only hope. I need you. Will you forgive me? And guess what? He will. But you've got to confess. You've got to admit. You've got to agree with God. The word confess literally means say the same thing. You're just agreeing with that, what everybody knows. We all know it's there. You've got to admit it. And then there's this other kind of echo of that confession of sin concept in James chapter 5. And it says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So that's the next step in this confession process. We, we call the small groups. If your schedule doesn't fit for you to get into a small group or celebrate recovery or one of the women's groups or men's groups, then grab a friend at least, but get into a relationship where you can confess your sin and pray for one another. I'm struggling in this area. Will you pray for me? Because I know God's grace is the only thing that'll fix me, right? I need God's grace. That's the only power to change. So we study the Bible together. We're like, this is what the Bible calls me to. This is the grace that the Bible proclaims over me. And then we pray for one another that, that we may be healed, that we might begin to change. So that's the spiritual life in summary. We, we clarify our understanding of God's grace and we confess and pray our way through it. And God's grace is what changes us. God's grace appears and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this brings us to the last point. And here on this last point, 
uh, we're going to see that grace changes our commission. Grace changes our commission. Um, I was looking for a word, and actually one of my assistant pastors was in the military. He was like, I think the, the military concept of commission captures this idea that's in the text. And so what we see in verse 14 is talk about who we are as the corporate people of God. We all, by belonging to Jesus, have a new identity and kind of sending commission that God's given to us. And then in verse 15, he talks to Titus as a leader, very strong authority language. You are the leader here. You declare this. You don't let anybody look down on you. And so one of the things we've seen, if you've been with us through this Titus series, is that God's people are led by leaders, but God's people, in a sense, are all leaders together. We all have this call in our lives. So I might spend more of my time preaching and teaching and leading corporately in this church as the pastor, um, but all of us have this special commission. If you belong to Jesus, you are commissioned by him to do his will in the world. So let's look at the text. In, in verse 14, it says, this Jesus, it says, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So he gave himself for us. So that's him taking our place. That's the reference to the cross, right? He gave himself as a sacrifice to purify us from all, unlaw- from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself. I totally botched that. Let me start over. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Right? Hear that people for his own possession. That's a kind of like jealousy that God has for you, right? Like I love my wife. I adore her. That's what that means. Not like you're a thing that belongs to somebody, but you're a person that someone is deeply in love with, right? Or if you have children, they belong to you and you passionately care for them, right? God has adopted us. We are a people of his possession. He cares for you. He wants what's best for you. And so we're people then who are zealous for good works. And then he starts talking to Titus as the stated leader here, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, right? This is ultimate. This is important stuff here. Keep declaring this grace. It changes what we're doing with our lives. I have a picture here of an old army commission. This is actually one from the early 1800s signed by James Madison, um, but as I understand it, I'm always scared when I use military illustrations, right? I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up, but I'll just allude and the rest of you can fill in the blanks. But the idea is that you no longer belong to yourself, right? But you've been sent by a leader. You're, you're functioning as their representative. You're doing the job that they've called you to do. And there's all kinds of variations in commissioning. That commission is commissioned directly from the president of the United States. I think, as I understand, there's different kinds of commissions that take place, but you're all sent, right? And that's what it means to be God's people. In this text in verse 14, where he's talking about the people of God language, he is talking, he's alluding, it's like a internet hyperlink to like 10 or 12 Old Testament passages all at once, right? So if you're not a Jew, and if you don't have the Old Testament memorized, like the Apostle Paul, you might miss it. So I'm going to give you three cross-references that you can go back and look at, And then just know there are like 10 or maybe 20 others as well that use the same kind of language. So here are three. Psalm 130, verse 8. Ezekiel 37, verse 23. And Deuteronomy 14, 2. I'll say it again because I know I just said it way too fast. Psalm 130, verse 8. Psalm 130, verse 8. 
Ezekiel 37, verse 23. Ezekiel 37, 23. And Deuteronomy 14, 2. Deuteronomy 14, 2. The language from those three verses, and like I said, 10 or 20 other Old Testament verses are all woven together in this one verse in verse 14. This is what God has been promising since the beginning. That God's going to fix what's broken in the world with people. Right? Like, like we know human beings are glorious. We know we're made to image God. We know that we're made to do more than just eat snacks and watch Netflix. Right? Like there's, there are bigger things for us. And these promises are saying, this is what I'm going to do with you, my people. He says repeatedly in the Old Testament that he's going to redeem us from lawlessness. He's going to save us from that, right? It's God's grace that's going to turn you from breaking the law to obeying the law. He says, then he's going to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's that adoption language. He's going to love you. He's going to do this. He's going to make a people that belong to him and people are going to know, right? Like people are going to look at the people of God and say, we can tell they actually belong to God. There's something supernatural about those people. They love what is good and they hate what is evil. They stand up for the rights of the oppressed and they care for their neighbor and they love what is righteous and they stand for justice and they exhibit the grace of God and and everything they do. He keeps promising he's going to do that. These people will be zealous for good works. He's saying to these Greeks, these pirates on Crete, that they're the fulfillment to everything that God promised to the Jews in the Old Testament. You know what that means? That in Christ, you and me, as I look out over your faces, we represent maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 50 different tribes of humanity in this room right now. I don't even know how many there really are in the world. You say, I'm going to take all these people And in Christ, I'm going to make this people, they're finally going to be the fulfillment of these promises. I'm going to commission them to represent God in the world. And what aligns us is not where we came from and not where we grew up. What aligns us is Jesus' grace given to us. That's what commissions us. That's what sends us. So if you've been hearing this language about everything God's doing in your life and how he wants to change you, and you've been thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I've got the strength to change. I don't know if I can really live for others. I would tell you at one level, you are right. But it's God's grace that changes us and sends us. It's not you doing it on, it on your own. It's not me doing it on my own. God's grace remakes us, commissions us, sends us for him. So other New Testament passages that talk about this, that we're the fulfillment of these promises in the Old Testament in Jesus uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 19, that whole section of Ephesians 2, it says, we're, we're the new circumcision, we're the, we're the people of God. If you have faith in, in Jesus, you are the fulfillment of everything he's promised there. Another favorite is in 1 Peter 2, talks about us being in Christ, a chosen race, in Christ, a royal priesthood, in Christ, a holy nation, in Christ, a people for his own possession, right? Echoing some of that same language. Hebrews 8 is one of the best passages about this because in Hebrews 8, he talks about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is the covenant that God made with Moses when he rescued his people out of slavery. We get the 10 commandments. And so what happened is God saved people. And then he said, now that I've saved you, go obey me. Does that sound familiar? It's kind of what he's done for us too, right? But in Hebrews 8, it's echoing the, the prophet Jeremiah 31. It's saying there's, there's something wrong here. And what's wrong 
is not the covenant. What's wrong are the people. The people are what's broken, not the covenant. So he says, I'm making this new covenant. And in the new covenant, he says, I'm going to write my law on your heart. So again, it's God's grace that actually makes us these people. It's the Holy Spirit coming into our life, transforming us, making us into this people that love what is good and what is right. So I want to encourage you that God calls us all to change, that God calls you to work hard, right? That God calls you to sweat and commit yourself to a new way of living, but it's ultimately God's grace. It's God's grace that will change how you are at work. It's God's grace that will change how you live with your daily habits and your lifestyle. It's God's grace that actually commissions you as his special people. God loves us because of his grace, because of his kindness for us. He did the work to adopt us and to make us his children. So how do we, how do we apply this? Number one, tell yourself, right? We already mentioned this phrase before, preach the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself about what he's done for you. That's going to help you be sent. Remember your commission would be another way to say this, right? Remember your commission. Tell yourself, preach the gospel to yourself. I belong to God. All these voices in my head are telling me that I'm a loser, that I'm an outsider, that I'll never measure up. But Jesus tells me I'm his and that he loves me in Christ. Secondly, speak up about these things to other people, right? You have a commission. You want to speak up about God's grace to others. And I know some of you feel very shy or feel very inadequate to know how to talk about these things. This is the most common thing I hear about people as well. I would talk to my skeptical friend about Jesus, but I know they're going to raise questions that I can't answer. And I want you to know that I've studied apologetics uh, and theology for, I'm getting kind of old now, like 30 years, right? 30 years now. Like it's kind of my job to have answers for questions like that. And you know what happens to me? Sometimes people ask me a question and I'm like, I don't think I know the answer to that. Let me work on that for you. That's a completely reasonable way to, ask, to answer someone, okay? Does that make sense? So, so don't use it in as, as an excuse that you don't have a PhD in theology and apologetics. Don't use that as an excuse to not like talk to people. Just share what you know. Think of the blind man that Jesus healed and they were quizzing him and asking him lots of questions. He was like, I don't know. I just know I was blind and now I see, right? Like, does Jesus love you? You can talk about that. Then when someone asks you a hard question, you're like, I don't know. I'll go find a friend. I'll look at the Bible. We'll try to figure this out together. So speak about the things. Know that you're commissioned uh, by him. And then finally, uh, invite others to join with you, right? If you're in a group, a small group, studying the Bible together, going to celebrate recovery in a women's group, in a men's group, whatever it might be. If you're, if you're pursuing these things, invite people with you. Say, hey, this is a place where we talk about Jesus. You want to come join with me? I've got other friends that are smarter than me, and we could talk about Jesus together. Invite people to church, right? We, we talk about gathering and worship. We're gathering around Jesus, We're gathering around him. We're not gathering around how smart we are. We're gathering around Jesus is our only hope. God's grace is what we need. So invite others into the community uh, that you are living in where you pursue Jesus together. So power to change. The power to change comes only through God's grace. Power to change comes only through God's grace. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, that's crazy. There you go. That's crazy. The power to change comes only through God's grace. And that is who God is. He's a God of grace. He proved that by giving himself for us in Christ, appearing on the scene for the salvation of all men. Let me pray for us.
God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've come after us. Thank you that you gave yourself for us to redeem us, to save us, to purify us, to make us your own people. And Father, I admit that I need your spirit to teach me how to believe this second by second, moment by moment. And I pray that your spirit would fill us and shape us and help us to obey you, to follow you, to remember that we are loved by you because your grace is our power to change. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen.